Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tone Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intercasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor. Go give us a great rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch and helps new listeners find the show. In fact, I've started doing shout-outs to people who leave us a five-star review on iTunes by reading their review verbatim here on air and crediting them. If you want to make me say anything, go leave us a five-star review, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Today's five-star review is entitled Excellent RPG Coverage, and it's from Illuminati Rob. Illuminati Rob says... I recently searched for D&D podcasts after not getting my fix from the weekly Lore You Should Know podcast that Wizards of the Coast has put on their site. After listening to only a couple of episodes, I realized the Tome Show is a great podcast with the kind of genuine and authentic nerd element that is important to keep one listening. Great coverage, great people, and great discussion. Well, Illuminati Rob, you are a great person. Thank you so much for leaving us this review. People, I am seriously running out of five-star reviews, so head on over to iTunes and leave us one, and I will give you a shout-out. Make me say anything. It's awesome. All right, everybody, this is a special plus-sized edition of The Roundtable. That's because we've got an amazing panel where we're breaking down all of the latest Unearthed Arcana articles, and then we have an interview with friend of the show, an amazing game designer, Mike Myler, about his new Kickstarter for Hypercore 2099 Wasteland. Everybody get ready, because here it is comes. Okay, everybody, today we are talking about three, count them, three Unearthed Arcana articles. That's because Wizards is giving them to us at an alarming rate. Uh, I'm very, very excited to talk about these uh, articles with the amazing panel I have assembled today. So let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question, which is, what is one class or subclass you want added to 5th edition D&D? And we will begin with the one and only Alex Basso. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back, James. So, you know, I feel like I've maybe been asked this question in the past, and my answer always changes. Uh, This time, I'm going to go with Sword Mage. This is a class that I thought was cool, but my brother is a huge fan of the Sword Mage, and he always talks it up. And, I mean, the more I think about it, like, I miss from 4E. James, I remember we had a game where you played a Sword Mage, Having that magical user who was just like teleporting all around the battlefield. He was, I felt like they were on like, you know, a dozen places at once, just hitting on everyone with their sword. And uh, I think there's room for it in fifth edition as maybe uh, almost like the, you know, a more martial, obviously a more martial wizard, uh, a class that could maybe be like a more limited arcane spellcaster, similar to like a paladin or a ranger. So I, I would love to see a sword mage adaptation. I know there's a couple on the DMs Guild too. And they're, I've looked at them. They're not that bad. Uh, I enjoy them. But I would love to see an official version. Yeah, I, that is my favorite class from 4th edition, as you uh, pointed out. I had a lot of fun playing it. So I would be a big proponent of seeing that make its way into 5th edition as well. Uh, and back at the round table, very excited to have her back, is Ginny Loveday. Ginny, welcome back. What class or subclass do you want added to 5th edition? Uh, well, I have to admit that I went back and looked at all of the previous classes because I couldn't remember them all. And I kept going back to the ones to do with dragons. So I think dragon shaman, even though it's not the greatest fit, because I just like, I really like dragons. (laughs) 
um, I mean, and the aura and having the kind of paladin-like abilities. So that kind of combines some of the stuff that I like from two of my favorite current classes, which is the paladin and then the um, draconic sorcerer. So that affinity as well as some more of those more divine um, abilities. Yeah, I, that was a great class that was in the 3.5 Player's Handbook 2, I believe. A really, really yes. fun, cool, flavorful class. So I, w- I would love to see that as well. We've got some great, great choices tonight. And uh, of course, new to the roundtable tonight is the one and only Greg. That's Greg with three Gs because there's so much Greg to go around. Greg Lauer. Greg, welcome to the roundtable. It is awesome to finally have you here, man. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, James. It's great to be here. Greg, before we get to your answer to the get to know you question, and you've got two really good answers we've got to try to top, I would love to know a little bit more about your background with tabletop role-playing games. Tell the listeners out there. Sure, absolutely. So I remember that when I was in fourth grade and I'm aging myself a bit here, showing uh, (laughs) how long I've been around Dungeons and Dragons, I had a friend of mine in fourth grade who actually brought in the box of the original basic Holmes D&D set. And uh, we attempted to play that thing and I enjoyed it, but I can tell you that we definitely didn't play it very well. But I really did enjoy it. So after that, I bought myself the uh, Moldvay and Cook sets, and I bought myself the hardcovers of first edition. But it was always rather difficult to be able to find people to play with. And to be honest, I think Star Wars and video games actually took over my life for quite some years. And I really didn't get into playing D&D seriously until right before fifth edition, to be honest. I played it off and on a bit after college and stuff. But I remember right before... The play test came out that I think it was at Gen Con that uh, Mike Merles had gave a presentation there about what they were planning to do with the new edition and to be able to get people's input on it. And it really spoke to me and I really believe that they were going to do a great job. So I signed up for the play test, got all of those materials and then just instantly bought the uh, hardcovers when they came out and I've been playing it ever since. They should make a, a uh, MasterCard or Apple-style commercial with your story for 5th edition. <laughs> it would be like a real emotional journey. I'd love to see that. Uh, so yeah, what, exactly. <laughs> what class or subclass would you like to see added to 5th edition D&D? So for this, I went back to my old books and I took out my old first edition uh, Oriental Adventures book. And I found that they have a version of the Barbarian in there that's absolutely fantastic. It can do crazy things like climb cliffs and trees. And they have features that makes them better at hiding and surprising others. And they're even acrobatic. So they have all of these features. But the best feature about them by far is the fact that if they're in their homeland, they can summon a barbarian horde. And based on their experience points, they can have that as many people up to the population of the entire native territory come in order to be able to help out the barbarian and his party. And there's a ton of fluff. There's about five paragraphs explaining the makeup of the horde so that you could have witch doctors show up and shaman and how many arrive per week and what you have to do in order to hold their interests. And I just thought this was absolutely fantastic. I am currently playing a folk barbarian in my current game and i would love to be able to take my party back to my homeland and to be able to gather my kin in order to be able to go out and to be able to adventure with us 
Whoa, nice. A, a well-researched, impassioned response from Greg. <laughs> Great showing right out of the gate here, Greg. Uh, I can tell we're going to have you back already. And I think that's actually talking about that barbarian sort of subclass is a great segue into these Unearthed Arcanica articles because these are all about different subclasses that we are going to be seeing. In fact, for the last four weeks, Unearthed Arcana has come out every single Monday uh, and there has been surveys every single Monday for people to respond to the material. So uh, if you want to help shape the future of 5th edition D&D, you definitely want to go to the D&D website, head on over to the Tome Show. We've got links for you if you if you need the, the link, if you don't know how to Google D&D. And then go take those surveys after you've read the material because it's... Uh, uh, important people get feedback. You know, Greg mentioned that survey, and the survey helped shape 5th edition, which is a great game, so help continue to shape it. We're going to first start off talking about the Bard. They did the Barbarian already. It seems like they're going in alphabetical order. Uh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago on the roundtable, and now we are going to talk about Bard Colleges. So we've got the College of Glamour and the College of Whispers in this article, uh, which was, uh, you know, I love bards, uh, might be one of my favorite classes. I'm not ashamed to admit it. And, uh, of course, friend of the show, uh, Topher Cohen, also loves the bard. Was was sad he could not be here to discuss the bard with us, but he's in Disney World, so, you know. Let's talk a little bit about bards and, and about what we think of these subclasses. Do we think that they're fun? Do we think that they're interesting? Do we like the mechanics? Uh, Alex Basso... Go. Your thoughts on the Bard Unearthed Arcana article. Bard. Uh, So the Bard choices, I actually, I was a fan of both. Uh, Of the two, I really like the College of Whispers a lot. Um, I I just, it feels very assassin-esque, and uh, it's got some neat abilities. One thing I I gotta say I like about both these classes a lot are the uh, kind of unique uh, way that they can use their Bardic Inspiration. Uh, they both have alternate options uh, based on their first ability. I really like when they take a class mechanic like that and kind of give it a twist based on what you know subclass you go with. Uh, the College of Whispers, like I said, it's very assassin-like. Um, you know, you're you're leaning more towards the rogue in the you know bard is jack of all trades. You're kind of leaning towards rogue instead of fighter or wizard. The other option is the College of Glamour. Their charming ability and they have very influential like magic abilities. They're it, it seems really good for someone who wants to emphasize the performance aspect of a bard. Um, I know they have the enthralling performance ability at level three, which uh, lets you basically captivate your audience. That's something I've kind of noticed in the game right now. I'm playing. We have a we've gone one to twenty with a bard, and you know he has performance abilities, but to have something like this, where you can actually basically command your your audience after you've given them a great performance is like one step farther into if you actually want to feel like a true performer and that's really cool for people who want to live that part out of uh, who who that's their favorite fantasy of, of a bard yeah it really brings magic into the bard's performance which is cool and i have to agree with you assassin bard like that it, it's uh it takes barddom to a place where many people don't think of right makes a bard like a really super dangerous kind of person, which I, I love. How about you, Ginny? What do you think of our two bard colleges here? I actually was more of a fan of the College of Glamour than the College of Whispers. So it works out we got both sides of the coin there. But I did like them both as well. I um, 
also like uh, the additional capabilities for the Bardic Inspiration. But uh, I really kind of liked that the College of Glamour kind of tied in to some of the different creatures in Otherworldly. You tutored by the satyrs and the Eladrin and the Fae. And to me, that kind of adds a little bit of pizzazz to like the bard uh, performance, which which kind of really is highlighted by the, the third level skill that they gave them there with the uh, seductive fey magic in your uh, performance. So I kind of really like that. And I know that I have some players here in my area. I have a lot of bards. It's pretty popular but that are definitely going to role play that and it'll be interesting if that if that becomes a a real thing i definitely think the word pizzazz needs to be used more often on the round table uh (laughs) especially when it comes to bards because that is some brilliant brilliant stuff going on there i think you're right i think bards to make a nerd comparison i think they aquamaned bards in this edition you know aquaman used to be like the lame superhero and then when they relaunched dc comics they did everything they could to make him awesome and now he's kind of a a badass and i think that's what they've done with bards and it looks like they're continuing the trend here which is great you know making them jason momoa now so he's he's transcended (laughs) exactly exactly yeah the cow himself right so so yeah it's it's really really cool to uh to see that with bards and it's great to hear that you have a lot of people who are playing them as well how about you greg what do you think of the bard colleges I definitely agree with Ginny, and I think that the College of Glamour definitely would lead itself to a lot of role play opportunities. They use words in there like otherworldly appearance and uh, unearthly beauty. So those words definitely evoke someone that's really interested in theme and fluff to be able to get something really uh, interesting out of a bard. Like Alex, I was definitely personally drawn to the College of Whispers, though. I think it It's interesting because it shatters that image of your typical happy-go-lucky bard, and this subclass is just much darker than anything that we've seen before. I think that it would probably be, as written, a little bit difficult to be able to work in with a party because of the fact that... um, The person playing it is supposed to be concentrating on the fact that others that you work with are really sheep to be used and exploited, and that goes a bit against a party dynamic. But what I could see is is that if you had, for example, an entire party that was made up of these bards of the College of Whispers, that that could be a lot of fun. I have a, a person that I play with regularly, and he's always saying as a DM that he would love to be able to have a group that was just made up of bards. And I can see that if he had an entire party that was made up of bards in this College of Whispers, that could do some really interesting damage to the monsters that they would encounter. So you'd be like a like a traveling troupe, like a like a band or a troupe of actors or something, and you're actually all secretly assassins as well. Yeah, exactly. Boy, they would be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, that is that is a uh, a horrifying thought. I will take with me in the next time I go to the theater. Um. <laughs> <laughs> one other small thing is, I think it would also be good for an NPC. So, if a DM wanted to run one of these, it would definitely be secretive as to exactly what their real main. In- 
interests were and to be able to have them into the party and then quickly, you know, kind of turn on them. I think that could provide some interesting opportunities. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, you brought up this part about them using other people and thinking they're sheep. While that does seem like, oh, man, that's that's not a great way to treat your party members. It does give them a reason to work with party members, right? Um, where I right. think there's a lot of these skullduggery sort of characters that are often loners. Like they, they either want to be Batman or they want to be brooding or they, you know, they, they want to sneak off on their own. And this sort of provides a reason for like, hey, this is why you should work with people because you can use their talents to achieve your goals, right? I think for a certain kind of player, it does uh, appeal because you can still have that personality but also still have motivation to work with the group and want to please the group because if you don't please those people then they're going to stop working for you right um so uh yeah it's all about the spin all about the spin um, <laughs> <laughs> all right why don't we move on to our next unearthed arcana article all about clerics like i said we're going in alphabetical order now we've got uh, three new domains. Um, we've got the Forge domain, which is a really cool domain that's kind of all about uh, enhancing your, your gear and giving yourself bonuses, making your gear magic temporarily and, and that sort of thing. Uh, kind of reminds me of the Artificer from 3rd edition and 4th and edition. And then there's the Grave domain, which is a really interesting domain that, that sort of... Uh, I, I guess it's almost like uh, death domain light would be the way to think about it. And then there is the uh, the protection domain. Uh, again, an, another cool domain. Three very, very different uh, domains uh, when you think about them. Uh, although they do share some similar abilities and they actually share some features with a, a lot of other uh, cleric domains that are already out there. Uh, so why don't we start with you, Ginny? What was your, your favorite domain here uh, and uh, and why? And which one was your least favorite? Oh, good. I get to go first so someone can't steal mine. Um, I liked... <laughs> what? What? We were all thinking it. Uh, I liked the Forge domain. I mean, at first level, it doesn't matter what weapon you have, it's plus one. That's super powerful. Plus, you can make stuff. It has a lot of really cool bonuses. And, you know, you get shield, searing smite, heat metal. I mean, tons of, and wall of fire, one of my personal favorite spells. Uh, tons of really good domain spells. It's got a lot of really great lore to it. Um, you know, patrons of artisans, humble blacksmith. I mean, so... You can really build your character's story, and, you know, it's not just kind of a role-play thing. It's got a lot of, you know, meat behind it. So I really think, you know, that's a, a great domain. They've really kind of went with the story that they've gotten there and just kind of made something that's uh, really... <laughs> I feel like I'm being redundant. It's really cool, guys. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, so, I mean... You get a lot of cool proficiencies. You get the heavy armor, which um, is you know pretty important if you're not a dwarf, because um, dwarves have them. I think uh, maybe I'm confusing myself, but I think dwarves have it. But you can now have proficiency with heavy armor as a human or an elf, which would be weird, but whatever. I'm kind of torn on how I feel about the channel divinity object turning an object into another object. That that one to me is more of a, a role play thing than anything, but uh, 
if you don't use your channel divinity much anyways, or if you really just like the, the flavor of that, then for second level, that's a really cool effect that you can have. You gain a lot more um, bonuses for, for your proficiencies at sixth level too. So resistance to fire damage, screw you fire giants, plus one bonus to your AC, you can hit constructs, deal additional force damage to it. I mean, I, I really don't see a lot of negatives to this. Now, on the other hand, um, my least favorite one was actually the, the Grave Domain, which I'm sure somebody's going to disagree heartily with me on that, because Death Domain is very popular. But I just, I don't know. That's not my style of playing. I mean, some people like the Kelumbors, they like death, and they honor death. Most of my characters tend to see it as something terrible you've got to <laughs> you've got to go on you got to live on you've got to fight on protect or defend or uh cause as much chaos as you possibly can death is not an option for for my characters so it just doesn't appeal to me as a player mm. now looking at it as a as a dm putting the other shoe on um it's pretty cool still so even though it's my least favorite, it's got a lot of cool stuff. Again, the spell choices, good. False life, ray of enfeeblement. I mean, revivify, of course. Everyone loves a good revivify. <laughs> Blight. <laughs> um, again, the proficiency, heavy armor, great. The channel divinity on it is, in my opinion, much better than the channel divinity on the forge. But um, still, it's got some great stuff to it. It's just of the three, my my least favorite. I remember you were on this show before, and you had said that Ravenloft uh, was not your your favorite setting. That Curse of Strahd was not your favorite adventure, uh, and so I'm not surprised to learn that the Grave Domain is not your favorite cleric domain either. I just don't have a thing for death. <laughs> <laughs> It's totally fine. That's uh, totally understandable. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll be honest, my favorite is also the Forge Domain. I think that's really cool, and I think, you know, you pointed out that that plus one bonus that you can get to, to AC or to, to a weapon attack is a powerful thing, and it is a powerful thing even at higher levels. You know, I have some higher level players. Alex had mentioned our, our game that we're at level 20 now. Still don't have magic armor. Yeah, relative yeah. scarcity of magic weapons in 5th edition, that is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I say relative scarcity because some, some people who haven't played anything else might not think they're that scarce, but compared to other editions... I mean, they are, especially if you're playing adventurously. You can't just go willy-nilly handing stuff out. There's a very strict method for how you get those weapons. Uh, So, I mean, being able to just... I mean, you don't really have a magic weapon, but just, boom, it's magic. Like, there's so much that you can overcome that otherwise would just completely be a stumbling block for your party. Totally. Uh, How about you, Greg? Uh, Favorite and least favorite cleric domains here. So from my favorite, I would actually probably pick the protection domain. I was interested in the fact that there is a fair amount of crunch, and I do like that in my game. I enjoy mechanics and being able to work with that. But uh, I also saw some decent role-playing opportunities with this as well. I like the fact, uh, their description about how uh, these clerics are basically like to be able to assist people and to help the weak and to be strong against those bad forces. So I could see people either deciding to be either a kind and benevolent helper, or you could go 
all the way in the other direction and be sort of an arrogant know-it-all. And if it was me, I would probably play it a little bit more for comedy. I don't know if you guys have either seen or, or read the Tick comics before, but I see it as kind of like a Tick character. The Tick is a superhero that uh, has a little bit of Adam West Batman sort of personality, but he's really huge and strong and doesn't realize when he's sort of infringing upon others, but is always interested in being right out there and being able to help good and to be able to uh, make sure that the weak are taken care of in a very, very entertaining fashion. So that's kind of uh, the direction that I would go in with this. I also like the Grave Domain as well. I think all three of these classes, I'm interested in the fact that each one kind of has a dark option, which you don't see as much of in the player's handbook. So I'd like to see that fleshed out. And me personally, I would probably do the Forge Domain the least if I had an option between these three to choose them. I still think it's good. I've also noticed, of course, like you guys are saying, that that uh, plus one is extraordinarily powerful. I would leave it up to uh, others that are smarter than me to know whether or not that's a little bit too strong and should be toned down in some way. But when I saw that, I was like, yeah, if I was picking this, I would totally be interested in that aspect of it. Nice, nice. Well, and it's cool to hear you and Ginny both say that even your least favorite of this group, uh, you still enjoy and still have ideas for, which is cool. And you said the magic words, Greg. You said the tick. Uh, so, uh, now it's funny. Protection was my least favorite. And now all I want to do is play a ticked themed protection domain cleric. Uh, well, can't you just uh, imagine him being like evil is upon us chum. And then just blatting everybody out of his way and trying to take control of the situation. It would be fantastic. It would be, it would be great. And he'd yell spoon and he'd have a capybara named speak that followed him around. Uh, but that's, we'll save that for my tick podcast that, uh, <laughs> I think I need to start doing now. Um, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Alex Basso, uh, what were, was your favorite and least favorite domain? So I'm going to kind of echo the sentiment here and say, I, I am a fan of all of them. You know, I'm going to have to pick a favorite and a least favorite, but you know, I, I don't strong, super strongly dislike any of them. Uh, so that being said, my favorite is going to be the grave domain. Uh, I really, really like the kind of religious character that just sees death as a, a cycle of, of life. And it, it's not like super negative. It's not a very bad thing to them. And it's just, you know, it's just something that everyone has to deal with. And, you know, to that extent, you know, if I was playing one, I've, it, it would be really weird. Even though there's a line at the end of the paragraph saying that they use their magic to stave off a creature's death, it says they also... They won't extend creatures' lifespans. I feel it could be really weird as that character healing people while they're about to die. Like, I, I would just want to be like, no, nope, I'm sorry, you know, party member, it's your time. Gotta let you go. Uh, which would be a huge jerk thing to do. But uh, maybe someone wants to roleplay it that way. What I love about them, I, I like their abilities a lot. I think they're all pretty unique. I really like their channel divinity. It, it can combine so well with a wizard. And I'm just thinking, like, Path to the Grave followed up with a finger of death. Uh, for insane amounts of damage on a single target. It's a really great ability. Uh, and on the strength of that channel, Divinity probably makes it my favorite. The flip side of that, my least favorite, Forge Domain. Uh, again, I like the lore behind it. I always, I mean, there's always some sort of, you know, every pantheon, you always have the blacksmith god, so it makes sense that there's a, a domain that worships that. I really like the idea. I, I'm going to say I was a little disappointed because when I initially saw it, I was thinking more of someone who... I don't know, used golems or 
created constructs themselves uh, instead of destroying constructs like they eventually Ooh, do. That's a great idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, that would have been the only thing that made it better. Yeah, I that part of the reason why I disliked that is because I was so excited by seeing Forge Domain, and then I read it. I'm like, eh, this is what I wanted. A lot of their abilities, I think, they're just kind of number boosts. They're a little on the boring side. Um, like, yeah, the magic equipment's great. It's probably really strong. But, you know, it's just a plus one. Their level six ability, just a little bit additional stats. Um, which, you know, I love stats, but... If you can do more fun things and also gain a good benefit, it's more enjoyable. Plus, their channel divinity is really, really boring and really just not... Its usefulness is so questionable. I mean, how disappointing would it be to, at level 20, you can still make, like, a 100 gold piece item? Like just, <laughs> it's just so disappointing. Like, at least increase the amount of the item you can make. I thought, I thought like, oh, maybe they right. can make keys to pick locks, but no, you have to have a copy of that key. Uh, you know, there's a couple cleric domains that have not that great channel divinities, but usually they have a second channel divinity to go with it as well. I'm thinking like knowledge, and I think trickery might have too. So I would, if I could see any improvement to this class, I would like them to add an additional channel channel divinity, which maybe has a little more general use than mm. the uh, making a cool dagger because you want to throw it or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe making like tiny distraction golems. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's, I, I'll fully admit, there's way more creative people that'll get great use out of this. But me, no, I can't think of anything anymore. Well, yeah, it, now that you put Gollum in my mind, that's got to be the second channel divinity. <laughs> it's gonna send out like those little golems that are just like uh, symbols. <laughs> I can't make the. I can't make the. You know, no, you know the sound I'm talking about. Uh, I don't. I actually. <laughs> Okay, the little symbols on legs. Oh, I see. Down. Like the 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 wind up monkeys that have the symbols. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I see. Yeah, those wind up <laughs> toys with their yeah, definitely. Yeah, or maybe the channel like, divinity uh, wind up toys. That'll be the second one. <laughs> Get on that. No, but like, it was cooler in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could be like a like a homunculus. You know, or, or or maybe you could like animate an object would be really cool, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you're you're right, Alex. Uh, this is it's very swingy because it all depends on your DM and the creativity of the the player in this case, uh, which does feel weird for a class that then also has an ability that it's like, and there's a static plus one bonus to a thing, you know. So so I think it it does run the the gamut. It's really cool that each of you chose one of these domains as your your favorite each of you kind of had a, a different one um which i think speaks to the the certainly the the strength of design uh, particularly in this article uh so why don't we start talking about druids our our final article we're definitely going to talk about the variant wild shape rule as well but before we get to that let's hit up our new druid circles we have three of them the uh, Circle of Dreams, which seems to have a sort of a, a fey uh, summer court bent to it. Uh, we have the Circle of the Shepherd, where it's a druid that communes with different beast spirits and has a, a focus on sort of uh, 
working with these spirits and, and animals and such. And then we have the Circle of Twilight, uh, which brings, is, is as many would guess, that darker option that you were talking about, Greg, that seems to be in all of these um, kind of about harvesting life energy from other creatures. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about these three. Greg, why don't you kick us off for this one? Uh, what uh, what were uh, some of your favorite and least favorite druid circles? Well, it may be no surprise that um, I'm drawn more to the Circle of Twilight over the other two, probably because it is that dark option. And it's interesting to see that, which is definitely in contrast to the normal druid options that are in the player handbook. I definitely thought it was the most unique theme-wise of this entire group. And um, I like the feature Harvest Sky, not only the name, but the fact that uh, you can give hit points to an ally from a fallen foe. And I think that a really good role player would be able to capitalize on that and really give some great imagery while they're playing the game. And um, the speech beyond the grave, I mean, who doesn't like talking to the dead? I guess the only thing about that is, is that, you know, there are spells that do the same thing. So it's not necessarily unique. And I guess that would be kind of some of the problems that I've seen in some of these other uh, circles. For example, even though I like Circle of the Shepherd as well, because I like the role-playing opportunities that it involves with regards to protecting beasts, and I enjoy the concept of the uh, spirit bond, which allows you to be able to summon animal spirits for support purposes, I felt that its options and its names, at least, were too close to the Barbarian's totem spirit feature, because they're basically the same names and they're similar mechanics. So I think that it could possibly look like that these two are overlapping a bit and then just maybe um, making these two classes just intertwine a bit as opposed to being separate and every class be its own unique thing and having its own place. Um, and I didn't talk about Circle of Dreams, but uh, that was fine as well. I, I don't see anything here that like a good role player wouldn't have maybe necessarily extrapolated from the Druid features that are in the player's handbook. And there were some other things in here as well. For example, uh, I had to read a bit the hit point bonus uh, that you gave to allies via Balm of the uh, Summer Court. I thought it was a little confusing mechanically at first. And if I have to read it a few times in order to try to understand exactly what to do, then I think maybe they may want to consider reworking it. Gotcha. So you're feeling like maybe of, of all these three articles, the Druid maybe overall wasn't as strong. For me, it wasn't. But to be honest, the Druid in general has not been a class that I've personally been drawn to. I've seen some people do some really great things with it in a game. Uh, and I enjoy having them in the game and people doing it. But for me personally, I've never been drawn to it. And overall, these three didn't make me go, yeah, now I really want to be able to play one. If I was told I had to play one, then I would pick the Circle of Twilight. But I would probably pick a different class altogether still. Gotcha, gotcha. So, Drew, it's not really your bag to begin with. Uh, a, for whatever reason. You, people can send me hate mail if they want. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. People like what they like, and, and that is totally, totally okay. Uh, Alex Basso, what do you like and dislike about these uh, Druid circles? I, I pretty much like them all. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to choose a least favorite here. Let me just say, I, I'm going to agree with Greg as well. I've never really been somebody who truly enjoys Druids. Uh, I've played Rangers a lot. My least favorite part about Rangers is the fact that they can kind of be like druids. Uh, so <laughs> like nature magic and that stuff isn't really for me. Um, I'm so but, sad that you both said that. So sad. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
The one thing Poor I Druid do, for you. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the one thing I do like about Druids, though, is their connection to the animals of nature. So Circle of the Shepherd is definitely my favorite. It, the Spirit Bond stuff makes me think a lot about the 4th edition Shaman. Uh, you know, almost, you know, you're summoning basically totems. They just stand there in a spot and they provide an aura. Uh, but they have really useful effects. And, I mean, the wolf, I mean, all of them are really good. And I like that you can switch between them and you're not locked into choosing one at, like, level two. And that's your choice for the rest of the game. Uh, and I really love Faithful Summons. Level 14, when you go down, a pack of animals surround you <laughs> and protect your body. That alone is like, ah, oh, this is this is awesome. Yeah, like definitely the, cool. The forest loves you so much, they're not going to let you die. Uh, and I, I think I'm not going to choose a, a least favorite James if that's uh, if that's all right with you. That's totally fine with me. Listen, there's there's no pressure here, all right? You're not running for president or anything. I think the other two provide pretty good options and, you know, differing ways to play the game uh, mechanic-wise. Uh, so they do their job. Well, and I think you know it's it's encouraging to uh, to hear what a, what people who maybe aren't the biggest fan of a class uh, what they do like about some of these builds. I think is is very telling, right? That is one of my favorite features of all of these articles. Is that when you go down, animals come and protect your body. It's like you're a, a badass Disney princess, which is uh, maybe doesn't sound as cool to some of our listeners as I meant it to. But I did mean that in a sincere <laughs> and cool way. But I think Disney princesses are badass. Uh, so why don't we turn now to Ginny. Ginny, I'm guessing you like druids because they're more about life than they are about death. Uh, so why don't you tell me, one, if I'm right, and uh, two, uh, what you liked and disliked about these druids. I Actually, it's nothing connected to life at all. I just really like animals and Disney princesses, so... Yeah. There we go. <laughs> boom. Boom. Spirit animals right here. Right here. <laughs> so, but really, these were all thematically cool, and I didn't really have a least favorite of these either. But honestly, reading through them all, if I was going to play a druid, I'd still pick Circle of the Moon. And yeah, yeah, I, that's kind of my feeling on that too. Like these are cool and I like them, but if I'm going to play a druid, what really kind of pulls me to that is the uh, shape-shifting, being able to be whatever you need to be to fit the situation. Sure. Now, um, of, of these though, even though I say a minute for the animals, I did like the circle of the dream winds the best. Oh, really? Yeah, um, it wasn't, it, I mean, I didn't feel that any of them were super powerful or anything, but I also don't feel the druids in this edition are super powerful either. I have to agree with the rest of you on that. Um, but, you know, they're still, they're still fun. Who doesn't want to be a shark or an octopus? Sometimes an octopus comes in uh, really handy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so the circle of the, the dreams, um, the, now, the... Balm of the Summer Court is a really cool ability. Maybe I've been reading rules too much, um, but it, it made perfect sense to me. Um, I did read it a couple of times too, though. So, um, but it, it, it's it's a really cool ability. You get you know this pool of energy that you you basically draw from your fae ancestors, and they're like, oh man, your allies are in need. How much of our energy do you want to give them? I mean, so that's. I mean, that's pretty cool to me. It's a really good, ro I mean, role play possibility on that, um, as well as just a neat mechanic. 
um, where it's kind of similar to the lay on hands and that you have this big pool and you can spend part of it or, or all of it, whatever the need is, but it's also kind of got a, uh, an additional, um, boost to it with the speed and the temporary hit points. So that's, that's a pretty neat effect. And then I'm just kind of skipping the sixth level one. We guard your camp. That's pretty straightforward. Guard the camp. It's guarded. <laughs> I mean, that does remind me, though. I mean, it's very important to guard your camp so the snatchers don't find you. Okay? <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> I agree 100%. Yeah, yeah. No snatchers. The hidden paths one. So... Um, being able to teleport yourself, that's cool, and you can do that via a lot of different means, but being able to teleport someone else and not yourself, that that in itself, it's kind of like a protection feature. Um, so you're, you're kind of in tune with nature, and you're using uh, nature and your connection with these spirits uh, to be like, oh, God, let me get you out of here. You know, so... I thought that was a very neat and different. It's not, you know, the same as Dimension Door where you can just take someone else. It's uh, n- not quite unique, but uh, it's it's unique enough to kind of appeal to some people. And then um, the purifying light part of it, though, on that one, I was a little, I don't know, I'm kind of iffy on that. But like I said, I don't think any of these are super powerful or anything, so, I mean, that's not really, um, although, like I mentioned before, though, the faithful summons for the Circle of the Shepherd, I mean, how cool is that? I'm basically dead, and then all these beasts come out of nowhere. I mean, all the uh, the villains would have to, like, pee their pants. Where did these guys come from? Well, <laughs> and I think that is, uh, that's a really great point, because it brings us to the next point here. So, so I th- wish Mike Shea we're here, Mike Shea of SlyFlares.com, friend of the show, because he, as a dungeon master, abhors the Moon Druid. Uh, so, uh, to the point where he thinks they're super overpowered uh, and has been known to occasionally nerf their abilities. Uh, we talked about that at Origins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, and to each their own. Uh, you know, I think I think uh, the argument can be made that the Moon Druid is supposed to serve a different purpose than the Circle of the Land Druid, right? Yes. But so they have proposed this optional rule, which is you have beast shapes that are known. Uh, and you can only become these shapes of beasts you have interacted with. And you start play with several, and then you can you can go from there. And you, then you can earn new beast shapes by observing or interacting with uh, other beasts that you meet sort of along the way while adventuring. Uh, so it's interesting because, you know, in 5th edition, they've always said they want to put the story first. Uh, and I've heard other people, it's not just my Mike Shea talk about the the power level of the druid and are there things that that need to be done for it. So this is sort of 
an optional rule they're throwing out as like a, hey, you know, you, you could do this. You could make this rule happen. Uh, the other reason you might want to choose this rule, uh, and uh, Alex Basso, maybe you can back me up. Friend of the show, Andrew Timez, uh, plays in our Dungeons & Dragons games, and he often gets choice paralyzation. So if he were playing a moon druid, as he is planning on doing, this would be good for him because it would limit his options of what he could play. He wouldn't necessarily have every single beast in the book available to him. Uh, so, Ginny, I'm actually going to start with you because you love the Moon Druid so much. Uh, what do you think about these optional wild shape rules? Honestly, I'm not a fan just because I don't like being limited in my choices, and I don't have choice paralysis. So, I, I think for reasons like you mentioned, it's 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 a very good choice, it, especially if like you're playing a table of uh, maybe newer players and they 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 don't know what all the stuff does to kind of limit it. Um, it also does kind of tone down that power level. Now, I think it's really interesting that they're offering this now just after, well, not just after anymore, but after we've gone to uh, the new fifth season and they've opened up the selections for Adventurers League for what you can be. It used to be that you were limited to the appendix in the back of the player's uh, handbook for your beast choices. And then with fifth season, they've opened it up to anything that's a beast. Monster manual, player's handbook appendix, the new Volo's guide. So for someone with choice paralysis, it just, you know, exponentially multiplied there. And honestly, I haven't played a druid since they opened it up. So um, I would have to take quite a few moments to narrow down my new selections. Um, but I, th I think I think that it's a pretty good selection of stuff. Uh, they give you uh, little tables where you can choose your climate zone, which is a cool way to sort that out. Um, if your character is from the frozen tundra, of course you've never seen a lizard. Lizards can't live in the tundra. I mean, that's just common sense. Maybe you're a well-traveled druid. But, I mean, how likely is that if you're a level one adventurer? You just started adventuring. Have you been to Chult? Probably not, man. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, so so story-wise, there's, there's good ways to fit it in. Um, it's definitely a helpful option as a, as a DM to have in your arsenal to be like, hey, man, we're going to use this rule. It simplifies my game. It gives me less that I have to know because you're not going to be like, well, this week I'm going to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And next week I want to be a giant eagle and then a jackal. And, you're, and your DM is like, I don't even know what those do, man. I mean, so it cuts down on your DM's confusion. It cuts down on, uh, you know, player mistakes from not knowing how the different beasts work because they have less stuff they have to learn. So I, I, I'm... You know, pros and cons. I can see both sides. So, um, uh, personally, for me, it's honestly probably not going to change much for what I do because it's a variant role, so it's probably not going to be adopted in the Adventurers League. Um, and I don't play many homebrew games, but um, I, I think it will. a lot of people will find it useful. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I think uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see who who adopts this. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, you know, uh, now with Volo's guide, there are a ton of options certainly out there uh, for for people to sink their teeth into uh, as far as wild shape goes. Yeah, it'll be cool to see. And again, the the starting B shapes that you get based on sort of your your climate uh, uh, is a really fun way to uh, to get at that uh what about you uh what do you think greg how do you feel about new optional wild shape rules originally when i was looking at it i was wondering to myself about it and thinking hmm it says in it says in here that this is designed for those of us that want flexibility and ease of use and it makes it clear and i'm looking at it and i'm like well it seems like in some ways it actually makes it more complex especially with the rules for gaining extra beast shapes because with the player's handbook you could just decide well this is something i've seen before and you go for it here it's got this entire mechanics that you have to go through and roll dice in order to determine whether or not you can use that shape and I really love crunch and mechanics. And when even I was looking at that and was going, eh, if I was the DM, I'd probably say, eh, you've seen it, you want to do it? Yeah, sounds good. Um, just go ahead and go for it. But I think where I could actually see this sort of thing being used is actually maybe in a store in the Adventurers League, because maybe you would have some new players that would come by and they haven't had exposure to either the hardcover books or the um, the basic PDF or the SRD, and therefore they just don't really... And if they were to show them that, there would just be so many options. And this way you could just point to, you know, this table and say, here you go. Here's the like 10 or 12 of these things that you can choose from. And it's a good selection. So therefore, I think that anything that's listed here for um, the second level prerequisite, that someone would find something that they enjoyed and be able to go off that pretty well. So I could see it in that kind of environment. But I think that for a regular game with people that have played before, that I could see all of this being... Being a little perhaps too constricting and just adding extra complication where there it doesn't really seem necessary. On that note, though, for ease of use and in-store, I do believe all of these are in the back of the player's handbook even. So he's got a point with that. Yeah, yeah, very true. And I do think that's true. New players, uh, I think they can get turned off just by seeing the size of the rule books and the, the character sheet with so much stuff on it. Uh, is is a big barrier to entry for new players for sure. So ha- limiting those options is a big, big help. What about you, Alex Basso? What do you think about these new wild shape optional rules? I love it. I love these rules. Oh yeah, why is that? Yeah, all about it. Uh, well, besides you know the points I've already mentioned, I think it just makes sense that a druid from a certain you know area wouldn't know how to transfer into something they've never seen before. Though, just a quick side note, I would love to see uh, an extra option where maybe you could transfer into an animal you've heard of and you had to, like, roll a d20, <laughs> and uh, you could, like, transform into a crappy version of it or, like, a weird <laughs> monster. Like, I don't know. Maybe you turn into, like, a jungle cat and you forgot claws or, I don't know, some, some weird amazing. option. <laughs> I, I do think it would speed up play, but one thing I think I would really like if I were a Drill to the Moon is, you know, I play a lot of video games. I like achievements. I like collecting things. James, I feel like I would constantly be asking you what animals are in this area. What <laughs> animals are in this area? You're playing like your own little mini game. Or you're you're trying to find cool new things to turn into. So maybe that would slow down the game. But uh, And also, uh, I like that it seems, it's another way for animal handling to get used. Uh, you know, 
this game to game, but like I, we've been playing like three years now, James. How many times has animal handling been used? I feel like less than a dozen. Yes, uh, <laughs> So to give that skill more usage, like a nice crunchy way to use it, is is real good. So I think there's a lot of pros to it, but you know, there's also many good points why you wouldn't want it. And I think you know a lot of people can handle knowing what animal they want and having all these animals at their disposal. So. It's good that it's a variant role, though. I, if it, you know, if I actually DM'd, I would make it baseline. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, you are correct about that achievement aspect, right? Any DM who uses this rule, who then wants to hand wave over like ten days of travel or something, is going to be like, oh, whoa, hold on, hold <laughs> yeah. on, buddy. We definitely see go through every hour of days. every day. Describe <laughs> uh, the the environment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, well, I think uh, this is this has been a great conversation, and I love that these Unearthed Arcana articles are coming out so quickly. I want to remind everybody to take the surveys because they are hugely important and to read these articles and, and check them out. But before we go, there's one quick final lightning round question I'm going to ask all of you guys. We're seeing these come out all of a sudden once a week. We're getting a lot of class articles. Uh, what product do you think this is for why do you think this is coming out so quickly and we'll start with you alex bassett oh man uh, uh players have a book too well <laughs> I, I don't know a celebratory christmas gift to thank all the fans just for playing. yes How about that one? it's christmas yeah there you go or holiday gift let's make it that, that there, you sense. there you go um geez i mean how much on earth arcana stuff has actually appeared in books so far I can't even think off the top of my uh, head. A couple I feel like of there's so much appeared in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had like all of the articles in front of me because there's a lot of stuff that they do that doesn't actually go anywhere. So I don't yeah. know. Maybe they are trying to tra- turn Unearthed Arcana into actual. You know, they're going to make a product out of it. So very well, true. Very true. That I'll would say. be cool. That would be cool to see an Unearthed Arcana book. Uh, what about you? What do you think, Ginny? Uh, or do you know and can't say? No, this is one time I legitimately get to speculate. <laughs> we'll speculate. I love speculating. It's my favorite time. So uh, I want to go with the popular fan theory of another splat book, kind of similar to Sword Coast Sky, but maybe centering in on another portion, like more specific than Sword Coast Sky, because there's a lot of lore left. And... Um, Maybe some of these options are more, um, they're more focused on certain types of things. So maybe it's stuff that's local to a different region. That's my hope. Anyways, please, Wizards for Christmas, get me a, another lore book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, for all of us, please. Uh, and, uh, and finally, Greg, uh, new guy here on the round table who will certainly be back. Uh, what do you think, uh, what, what is one of, uh, what's one of your theories about this? Thanks, James. I, I can't help but think that they're probably going to crank out some kind of player's handbook too at some point. The fact that they've ramped up these articles to weekly now, and they're all of these, player class options just seems that that's what they're thinking about the other two books that they've released are great i have them both the sword coast adventures guide and volos and there's but there's definitely 
more thematic and fluff oriented and there's definitely some crunch but it's really just a small percentage of the book so i think for those folks who really want crunch it seems like that they're sort of ramping this up and we've had now what over two years it's been since the original three core books so it seems like you know they've been good on their promise about not flooding the market with a ton of core rule books so mm, I would say within the next nine months or so that we're probably going to see one and maybe we'll see some of this stuff in it. Uh, closer to three years. Oh, is it three years now? I want to say I'm really, yeah, I feel like that's, I don't know. Calendar math is hard. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no matter what, it's been a while. So um, I'm just always expecting that they're going to have a new core book of some sort right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah it has been almost three years now. Yeah, yeah. The new monster manual now, and mm -hmm. you know, skinned differently. So a new PHB would make sense. I just, I want the lore too. So if it is a PHB, please have more lore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there will still be lore and they're still going to the uh, put the story first uh they've, they've oh, certainly yeah. proven that. Yeah. Well, um I I do know uh I just want to add one thing that I do know and I'm sure y'all know it too because there was a tweet that Chris Perkins has recently just finished his design work on whatever he was working on. Mm. So Yes. We're going to have a new story soon. Mm. He's working on acquisitions inc now which we're all excited about that too but so that's going on and um you know new season springish mm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah we're gonna see we're gonna see some cool stuff i have no doubt so it seems like each adventure keeps getting better so i'm excited to see when that comes out as well and i hope you will all join me uh back here on the round table to talk about it but before we go, uh, Alex Basso, where can people find you? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at yo underscore Alex Basso. And also on the amazing, wildly popular radio play podcast, Have Spelled yeah. Will Travel. Yeah, I forgot about that. James, you're, oh, as always, you're better at pitching and advertising <laughs> about myself than I am. That was a shameless <laughs> self-promotion too. So he <laughs> <laughs> It definitely was. It was also it was it was wholly selfish. Ginny has definitely identified that. Uh so and Ginny, where can people find you? Uh well you can find me on Twitter as well, um at Jenny Loveday. Uh Facebook same thing, Jenny. Jenny Love Day. It's a it's a good name. I'll just stick with it. You can find me for a, a brief bit more on the D and D Adventures League website, but uh, you can find me on the message boards. Anyways, we'll still be organizing away and making stuff happen. So find me in person at a convention. There we go. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I got to make one more plug. Go for it. Winter, fa winter fantasy. Vote for Calypso. Calypso for Flan. <laughs> yes yeah absolutely absolutely and greg uh where can people find you sir people can find me on twitter i am glauer42 i'm also on facebook facebook.com slash glauer and if you'd like to play some D, D with me i have a public group so we're on meetup so if you search for the southern connecticut D, &D meetup and you happen to live in the southern connecticut area we are there and we play tuesdays at 7 p.m in orange connecticut so please check us out if you'd like to play some D, &D down here well thank you all so much for joining me on the round table today. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having Thanks for having us, yeah. Man, that was an awesome panel discussion. Now it is time to take a break and thank our sponsor for this podcast. Our sponsor for this podcast is the one and only OpenGamingStore.com. My product pick for OpenGamingStore.com for this episode is the 5e Menagerie Howl at the Moon. It retails for less than $4 at OpenGamingStore.com. It is from Sam Hing and Rich Howard. And it gives you all sorts of new wear monsters and shape changers, CR3 to CR10 to CR19. Come on, people. You need this no matter what level you're playing because wear creatures are scare creatures and you want to scare your players. Now, here to tell us more about OpenGamingStore.com is the totally improvisational bard. Why, hello, it's me, the improvisational bard. I'm singing about open gaming store that's right baby <laughs> hey hey can i get another one of these people twip your waitresses OpenGamingStore.com. they're a place where you can buy pdfs and books and all sorts of rpg accessories take it from me the improv bard and use the code Tom Show 2017 at checkout to get 10% off. Woo! Improv Bard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everybody, now I am here with the great game designer, Mike Mylar. Mike, welcome back to the roundtable. It is awesome to have you here again, man. Thank you for having me. I don't know if I'd say I'm, I'm great. I would say intriguing and bizarre, but... <laughs> I would say handsome and good at math. The most desirable qualities in any human. Uh, So it is great to to have you here, Mike. And we are, I mean, last time we had you on, you talked to us uh, about Miss of Akuma. And pretty much like the day that I got my copy of Miss of Akuma on uh, PDF, then... I saw that you had launched another Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, how do you handle all of this work? <laughs> oh, I don't sleep very much at all, really, is the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I, I work a lot, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the deal. Like, once, once you get the momentum um, mm-hmm. in a creative career, you have to, like, keep it. It's important to take breaks, and I did. I took a four-day break, my first vacation in, like, four years. <laughs> Uh, in October, and I went to New York. It was wonderful, but um, yeah, no, I try to like once the, the the ball gets rolling, I just keep pushing, keep pushing it, and keep pushing it, keep pushing it, and, and making new stuff. And so a lot of the, a lot of designers don't do this full time, right? And it's just like, okay, well, I have a weekend coming up. I'm gonna work on this project, and they they just work on that one project, and they move on from this project to the next. But as a full time designer, I have I have multiple different things I'm juggling. I got Varanthia Codex, and I got Hypercore, and I got Mist of Akuma, and I got other stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I've got like little projects for other publishers, like uh, uh, E Insider. I do a ton of work for. Um, I just sent an adventure over to the Skyborn people. I do better if I'm in an environment where I have a lot to do. I guess <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. And to pay the bills, you certainly need to take on multiple projects if you're doing this full time, right? Yes, 
so let's talk a little bit before we get into Hypercore 2099. Let's talk about Mists of Akuma. How did that go? How how did the book turn out? Are you happy with it? Okay, so um, there's a lot of pushback from my publisher when I was making it because he's he's used to being the guy in charge. Yeah, he he wasn't quite prepared for having me in charge, <laughs> and uh, so we we did a black background with white text and. Like, I wasn't really sure it was going to work. You know, it looked okay as a PDF. And then I got it in the mail, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I felt like I was holding, like, a, like the death notebook or something. It was, it was phenomenal. And uh, I did a Google Hangout with the publisher because I sent him the soft cover. Mm-hmm. And what we found out was that uh, although we got the interior file through, there's this thing called ink saturation. Um, <clears throat> if you're just building PDFs, this is not a problem. You don't have to worry about ink saturation. The way it works is, you know, you've got these multiple layers, right? And on the one layer, you have your page background. And then on the next layer, you have all your elements, like your, your images and your text. So whenever the printer reads this, this file, it reads both layers and stacks the ink on top of them. So when I got my hardcover proof, it was, like, perfect everywhere. All the images were amazing. And then I looked through, like, the Google Hangout of the softcover my publisher got, and a lot of the images were not amazing. They just got, like, sucked up into the black ink on the page. So I had to go through and um, cover ink saturation for every single file, which took me like I don't know, like two days because there's over 300 different images if you count all the page backgrounds and all the sidebars and everything like that. Uh, but yeah, I just submitted my new interior file and then fixed hardcover files. So uh, I should be ordering my last print proof in the next couple of days and then send out vouchers to all of my backers and close up Miss Vicuma. And on top of that, I also like have another adventure I already put through layout called the Eye Sovereign of Storms. It's pretty cool. You go to like a, a hidden Oni city, and then I uh, I have another one I have to put through layout called the Fangs of Revenge, which is really cool. Uh, I went I, so um, another thing that's cool about Miss Vicuma is all the public domain stuff. Mm-hmm. So if, did you look through the PDF at all yet or no? Yes, yeah, I love it. I think it's amazing. So right, and it fits, and it like it all has this consistent art feel if you look at like the big half page things at the start of every chapter you will notice there's ukiyo-e in those so there's like the tavern fight for i think it's the character options chapter 12 and Mm -hmm. um sarah shijo was doing it up and she just had like tea house doors because it's in a tea house and i was like sarah here are a bunch of public domain files that are big enough that will fit on these doors just pick the ones you like best and put them on the tea house doors (laughs) so it like uh yeah yeah, yeah, I really, I really love the feel that we got for the artwork in Mississippi. It, it plays oh, fabulously. So, but um, I'm getting a little off kilter. In Fangs of Revenge, I made two maps: one for the town and one for like the final encounter. Actually, I actually have another one too, mm-hmm. uh, and they're public domain, right? So the one is uh, an actual Japanese mansion that I turned into like a forge area. Gotcha. And then the other one is a. Uh, El Paso, Texas from like 1875. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, that sounds ridiculous, but wait until you see it because it looks totally legit. And uh, the, what's the last one? Oh, it's like a big building for whenever you go and do some like subterfuge stuff, you can see it from the outside. And it's another public domain piece from, um, I think it was like 1875 Japan or something like that. And the Fangs of Revenge, is, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So I, I ordered a bunch of custom art from Nathaniel Bachelor because uh, I found out in the adventure... In the, in the actual book, like uh, the chapter 15, The Revenge of the Pale Master, there's like, I don't know, 18 characters or something? Because it's a mystery. It's a lot of characters. And while we were doing it, and I was like, okay, well, we have to have 
we have to have fortress for these characters because there's no way that I, even as the GM, ever going to be able to follow all these different threads without like some kind of mnemonic tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just used that trick again, and I ordered a bunch of custom ones from Nathaniel for uh, Fangs of Revenge. So I've got all my all my stuff ready. I just gotta put it through layout, and I have another. I got a Varanthia book for Pathfinder called The Forever Dark that also has to go through layout, and and uh, yeah, that's pretty much going to be in my next month. Just <laughs> putting stuff through layout. That's really cool, man. I love that you are involved in so many things. It probably sounds like to many of our listeners, you're living the dream out there, which uh, which is great. Um, it's great when you see game designers who are living the passion and not just trying to cram it in around a full-time job like I am. Uh, so, you know, I, I think what you are doing is incredible, and your latest project is pretty awesome. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Hypercore 20. 99. Uh, this is, of course, uh, a, a project that is already going on. So for listeners who may not be familiar with what that is, tell us all about it. Sure. Um, Hypercore 2099 was my second Kickstarter. And it is a way to take your game, be it Pathfinder or 5e, we have two different versions, uh, from like you know fantasy medieval to uh, futuristic fantasy cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also includes superheroes too. When I went and like started to develop the, the like the product lines for it, I was like, why should I do the same thing for both Pathfinder and Five E? Like, mm-hmm. I could be more interesting than that. So we released um, a couple of things for both. Right, there's some adventures that were part of the the Kickstarter that had to be both. And then I made uh, the Hacker Handbook for the Pathfinder version because the response online for the Hypernet, uh, which is free by the way, you can go download the, the Hypernet PDF for free from Hypercore.com along with a couple other ones. Yeah, a lot of people were playing with the Hypernet uh, in the Pathfinder version, so I made the, hi- the Hacker Handbook. It's this like great little 60-page thing that offers you character options and, and everything. It's, it's, if you're going to play in the Hypernet, you definitely want one. And uh, I, I went to start doing stuff for 5e, and uh, then my video card died. And I was like kind of slogging through work a little bit, and I got a replacement video card from a sibling, and it was a better one, and it could run Fallout 4, and Fallout 4 was on sale. Nice. Fallout 4 against my better judgment. (laughs) A woman I dated for like four years broke up with me and Fallout came out like, I don't know, 30 times during the final argument. I lost about two weeks of my life, maybe. And it was bliss. I loved it. It's a really good game. If you haven't got Fallout 4, oh my God, go get it. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I came out of it and I was like, well, now I really want to write some kind of pop weapon material. And I thought around like, well, what should I do? What should I do? And I was like, oh, you know what, man? Hypercore would be really cool if I could take all that superhero fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then everything just clicked, and I started writing and writing and writing and writing, and then I wrote, like, 80% of a book. I have art, art assets, and, like, we, we we might be able to do a, a kind of, like, blasé 80-page PDF without any money, but I was like, this could be a whole thing. Like, this, this deserves so much more. So we're running a Kickstarter, mostly so I can buy art and bring in um, a, another designer to help me. Mm-hmm. Make sure that I'm not just totally crazy. <laughs> Uh, what's it like when you are designing one of these properties? You know, you're taking Pathfinder and you are taking Dungeons and Dragons, which are not necessarily rule sets meant for, uh, you know, a Fallout style setting. What's it like when you are turning medieval into post-apocalyptic? Well, uh, with Pathfinder, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit different depending on which one system you're talking about. Like, Pathfinder's pretty wide-ranging, and they have a lot of subsystems to cover. 
pretty much everything, you know, intrigue and, and occult and technology and stuff. With 5e, it's way more, um, it's, it's uncharted territory still, very largely. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way the rules are written in it, it there's more narrative power and uh, GM fiat for 5th edition. Everything's not nearly as well defined. It's, it's not as much of a simulation as Pathfinder has become. Sure. So, I mean, that, that's kind of a thing to keep in mind. Uh, in terms of like how to make it all work, I use global rules. Mm -hmm. So with uh, Hypercore, it is that you get this a hyper score, and the hyper score grants you hyper abilities. It's like a template that you just lay over the regular rules. And then uh, to enforce like the themes, there are two attributes called luck and reputation. Trying to plan for every eventuality in a, in a cyberpunk or modern game is particularly daunting. So you just use a luck attribute, you know? And then the reputation attribute is a way to penalize and also make the PCs feel like like the world around them uh, exists without them being there. Right, right. And so is that the sort of thing that you roll for, like your other attributes at the beginning? Or is that something that you point by into? How does that work? Uh, that is a static number based on your level, or in the case of regular hypercore. Uh, your hyper score, and then your charisma for your uh, reputation. And you can increase it with feats, too. That's awesome. So uh, what sort of stuff, then, is in the, the world of Wasteland? You know, I watched your Kickstarter video, and one of the things that intrigued me was you said it's not really a campaign setting book. It's a book you would use to build your own campaign setting, which I love. It, it sounds like because I think a lot of post-apocalyptic Fallout-style worlds share a lot of the same features, this sort of gives you the general and helps you create the specific. Is that how it works? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I thought about when I decided to make this into like a bigger project, I was like, well, what kind of book would you actually buy, Mike? You know, like there are a couple of Forgotten Realms books from third edition I bought, and I buy the core books and stuff, and like there's the occasional product which I just have to have, like uh, Paisa did this adventure called Rasputin Must Die, mm -hmm. where you go to like World War One Russia and you have to kill Rasputin. It's awesome. And right. I, you know, I just had to have that. Uh, but for the most part, I, I prefer to make all my own stuff. So I tried to think of something that I, uh, this ridiculously uptight prude, would buy. A world generator for a specific genre is what I came down to. And uh, specifically with Hypercore Wasteland, 29 Wasteland, it, it works really well because we're changing a lot of the base assumptions of the game, right? So it's not so much about you guys, or your characters, I should say, achieving glory and, you know, saving the town from the dragon. It's much more about you, like, getting further away from wherever it is in the wasteland you emerged from and exploring more of the wasteland. So, like, having a global map doesn't make as much sense at that point, right? Because the game isn't really about these national politics where you're going to get involved in the intrigue of the court of Wismir. <laughs> it's about, you know, making your own court of Wismir, in which case you should just make the whole map yourself. So I, I developed the settlement and the, the settlement system and the resource system. And, and every time that you, like, enter a new region with a party, the GM, depending on, like, what continent you're on, mm -hmm. rolls to see what resources are there and then decides what the resources are. So, like, you know, you, you roll up, like, oh, I got seven technology resources in this region you can decide to put all seven of those into like a highly f like fortified, I don't know, abandoned mad scientist's fortress. 
mm-hmm. that you know he died and it's just all sitting there behind laser turrets. There, there, I, there are a lot of examples in the PDF specifically for this because I kept saying to myself, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So I just made lists of uh, you know different technologies and and ways to have like you know interesting natural resources. So it's not just like you find a big cache of seed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, and you're talking about continents. Is this is the assumption that this was our real world that you and I currently live in. Uh, yeah, it, it, the assumption is that it's hyper-Earth that uh, changed. So there's this really awesome, and I say awesome because a lot of the reviews for HyperCore say that the timeline is awesome. And I'm <laughs> uh, but it alters, right? So in, um, in 2099 Wasteland, what happens with the Bay of Pigs escalates and ramps up until World War III occurs, and then nuclear fire goes everywhere. So there's like elves and dwarves and gnomes already running around. Gotcha. And then the nuclear fallout goes down. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how recently after the Bay of Pigs went terribly does the setting take place? I think I gave it eight years because Bay of Pigs is 1961, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1969 is where the, the bombs start dropping. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Wow. And mind you, there are still some like Alter Sapiens, like superheroes, that mm-hmm. were around. So um, th- normally I don't think the fallout from uh, a worldwide nuclear catastrophe would be at uh, livable levels after only 130 years. I think it's minimum like 240 or something like that. Sure, sure. But with the help of mad scientists and good benign ultra sapiens trying to like curb the devastation, uh, it's good enough that you can get out there. Although there is still a ton of radiation in the world. It's a- another one of the major elements of the thing. It's uh, there's even an irradiated attribute to go with luck and reputation. So as you hang out in irradiated places, you get more irradiated yourself. And then whenever you hit a certain point, um, you have to spend your next level becoming a mutated freak. <laughs> uh, which is, I guess, one of the class levels then? Yeah, it's a 20-level class. You choose to be like... Um, I, don't know, I play a lot of Left 4 Dead. Mm-hmm. And I really like the archetypes they have for the infected zombies. Do you ever play that game? Yes, love Left 4 Dead. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's one's like all about um, range stuff. Another one's like a big. I think it's called a bulker. <laughs> and the other one is uh, a weird, just just like weird. That's awesome. That's awesome. And the bulker is, I, I guess, similar to the tank zombie, right? In Left 4 Dead. Yeah, yeah the tank and the charger. That's awesome. That's so much fun. That's really cool. So if people want to check out Wasteland, do they need to have any other uh, Hypercore 2099 books? Absolutely not, no. It is a standalone supplement. And uh, if you want to use the like extra rules, all of those rules are available for free. And um, uh, they're linked to in the one PDF where they come up. Wow, that's really great. Uh, so let's talk about the Kickstarter itself for a little bit. What can people get uh, aside from obviously a, a PDF of this if they uh, buy into the Kickstarter? Um, well, the base is a PDF, mm-hmm. and then after that, you can get uh, at-cost print vouchers. Wow! Which basically means that you're paying for um, the same thing we did for Miss Fukuma. Mm-hmm. So you throw me five bucks to actually make the book. And then uh, you pay ten for the PDF, and then you pay for like the shipping, the paper, the ink, the glue, mm-hmm. and, and that part. Yeah, the the cost that it yeah. takes to make that—that's awesome. That's really good. That's uh, it seems like more and more people are are doing Kickstarters that way, and I love it. It's great. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I did Varanthi that way, and then we did actual regular rewards that I fulfilled for Hypercore, and then we did Mr. Fukuma with the vouchers, and it's it's just faster and easier for everybody, honest to God. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of waiting that goes on, and then if you make it a queue for um, fulfilling print rewards, instead of it just being, like, one person deciding, like, oh, okay, cool, the thing's available, I'm going to go get it right now. You have to wait for somebody in the business to get to that, and if they have an emergency, or like if their internet drops a lot, or if their video card suddenly dies, <laughs> then you're going to have to wait a little bit before they're able to accomplish their task. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to do another straight physical reward Kickstarter ever again after after experiencing it both ways. It's just way better to do the vouchers. Yeah. So you can get 29 in Wasteland. If you want to get the 5e version of Hypercore, that is also an option in the pledge levels, both for the PDF and the at-cost vouchers. I have had some luck in my previous campaigns with pledge levels where I offer to run like small campaigns for people. So I'm offering that. Uh, one of them is already taken, but I think seven of them are still open. So go grab that. It's awesome. You can watch a lot of my live plays on um, YouTube. If you just look up Mike Myler, you'll find a bunch of them from Ms. Fukuma and Hypercore. So people have a chance to actually play with you if they want. Absolutely. And I'll make like a custom... So whole, I, don't, I don't like run you through like a thing. I ask you guys, like, what do you want to have happen? Where do you want the game to be? Is there something specific that you should be doing? Like, do you want to go to a, like, are you way into mad science? Because then the thing will be about mad science. But, um, yeah, I, li- I like to do customized games, and it sets good precedent. It gives me, like, a little extra authority. It gives people a little bit more freedom because they feel like, okay, well, I bought into this experience, so... You, you approach it a little differently than when you're just going over to Tom's house on Saturday and you have to bring the soda, you know? Mm-hmm. And then um, there's a couple of levels. There's one for, like, friendly local game stores where they mm-hmm. can get a whole bunch of at-cost print vouchers and then an advertisement in the book. And then there's uh, pledge levels to include, like, your very own characters in the book, be that a warlord or, like, an NPC. Or oh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open that's super, super fun, man, and super awesome of you to uh, to have all these various rewards and things. I think it's great for people who want to get involved. So who is working on this Kickstarter? Principally, it's me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've learned it's better to be like a one-man show with side acts than to be just a one-man show. So I want to bring in Savannah Broadway. Savannah's great. If you don't know who Savannah Broadway is, she uh, was a Paizo intern, and she's worked on the original Hypercore. She worked on Miss of Akuma and has worked on a ton of different RPG products. And then a bunch of artists, because like the main goal here is to get artwork. So I've got uh, Sarah Shijo, Indy Martin, Jacob Blackman, Nathaniel Batcher, and Naish Washburn, all of which worked on Miss of Akuma, and for the most part on all my other books, too. Um, I'm really comfortable with these guys. They give me really good rates. We have a good working relationship. I'm, I'm really stoked to see what they come up with because they're all excellent artists and they're really good at interpreting my jumbled, crazy art orders and, and doing stuff that normally would be impossible. Like uh, the cover for Varanthia, I have to find the file somewhere. I had something like 40 or 50 characters on it and Jacob was just like, Mike, no, nobody will be able to tell anything what's going on. How about this? I was like, oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great dude and it is a great team you have really assembled there so if people are looking for a top-notch quality product that they don't really need to learn a fully new rule set for it sounds like hypercore 2099 is the place to go 
Okay, so Mike, it sounds like if people want to get their hands on an amazing Fallout style guide that gives them all sorts of great information and they can use rule sets that they already know and love, this is for them. So what I'm saying is this is for me. So for me and for anybody else listening who wants to check out this awesome RPG supplement, uh, where should they go and what should they do? Uh, they should go to MikeMyler.com, and you will find links to the 299 Wasteland Kickstarter there. Although, honestly, if you just type hashtag 299 Wasteland into Google, mm-hmm. you'll find a bunch of hits, and almost half of them should have links to the Kickstarter page. On the Kickstarter page, I'll point out there are three free preview PDFs, so you can like get the primer, get an idea of like, what's going on, and, which includes, by the way, a character background for being abducted by aliens. If you just want to play I'm Varys the Fighter, and I don't know what's going on in the wasteland. Like, I have planned for you. And then um, the other one's the doctor class. Mm-hmm. Because with the radiation, it negates a lot of magic. So there needs to be an alternative healer. So I made the doctor class. And then the last one is the settlement rules, which are the part that I'm like really proud about. If you want to get an idea of like how the world generation thing works, look at that PDF and check it out. And let me know what you think. I really love getting feedback and critique from folks. So. That's awesome, dude. Mike Mylar, you are a great person and a good dude to have in any business. I'm very glad that you chose RPGs because you make this industry and this world a better place. So, uh, and, uh, and thank you for sharing your imagination and your world with us, sir. Uh, if people want to follow the musings of you, where should they go? Oh, they can check me out on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'll just look up Mike Myler. We're pretty easy to find. MikeMyler.com is a good way too. And also I have a Twitter, uh, at MikeMyler2. Excellent. Excellent. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today. No, oh, thanks for having me, man. All right, everybody, before we go, it is time for our DM's Guild pick of the episode. My product pick for this week is The Complete Adventures of M.T. Black. M.T. Black is an amazing adventure designer. We've recommended his adventures a couple of times on the DM's Guild. Well, now you can get the whole set of his adventures for less than $8. That's right, for $7.95, you get a lot of M.T. Black goodness. At the moment, it stands that you would get 14, count them, 14 amazing, awesome adventures. Complete Adventures of M.T. Black is available right now via direct link at thetomeshow.com. You don't want to miss out. It's a discount of 70% for some of the greatest adventures on the DMs Guild. Enjoy. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. Tons of free resources for your 5e games over there and DM advice, all kinds of goodness. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you are listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.